Well, last week was Halloween with an I-N-G. This week, it's Halloween with a double E-N. What a difference a week makes. Turn your phone off, Rick. What a difference a week makes. Last week, we were concerned with what might make a space and people hallowed, holy, sacred, place and people of God. Today's a bit more complicated. I, I, this is kind of fun. <laughs> Sorry, it's <laughs> a bit of a distraction, but that's all right. Um, so uh, today's a bit more complicated, okay? What in the world does Halloween have to do with our faith, our theology, our God, our good news? Isn't this just the season when children of all ages dress up as Marvel heroes, Disney princesses? I think we might have a Disney princess here somewhere lurking about, maybe. Yeah, up there somewhere. A Disney princess, dinosaurs, devils, ghouls, and goblins. It's all innocent fun, right? As children of all ages scamper from house to house crying, trick or treat in spite of those in our faith tradition who proclaim the holiday as evil, encouraging Satan's enterprise. Mallory Chalice, who's a, a little article I'm relying on a good deal today for this reflection, uh, describes it this way. She says, Halloween, the season of costumes, pumpkin carving, and candy. And let's not forget articles telling Christians not to let their children trick or treat because this holiday derives from cult traditions and because cults are inherently satanic, Christians should steer clear of anything related to them. Amen? No, no, no. <laughs> Here at Fairview where people come to play as well as to worship and to serve, Spooky Sunday is a revered tradition. Now I'll admit that it initially uh, struck me as a strange phenomenon, but I quickly discovered that I don't mind playing along for the good of the community. Far be it from me to interfere with what brings joy to the people of God who gather in this Halloween place. When I chanced to look for Halloween liturgy, I actually found some. And yesterday, a friend in New York City shared some amazing pictures of a Halloween event in the venerable nave of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine with ghouls and ghosties and other figures floating in the cavernous space while the organ played Night on Bald Mountain and other eerie music. It seems there is a place for Halloween, at least in some churches. So whence Halloween? How do we get to this traditional and now highly commercialized holiday? Well, the origin of the word derives from the religious tradition of All Hallows Eve. Over the years, All Hallows Eve has been shortened to Halloween. But what was All Hallows' Eve in the first place? 
Well, a little church history lesson. In the 7th century, Pope Boniface IV, or maybe it's Boniface, if I'm speaking Italian, I guess, IV, decided there should be a kind of catch-all day to celebrate the the saints who did not already have their own dedicated feast day. He set the date as May 13th. This was the origin of All Saints Day, or All Hallows Day, which we will celebrate next Sunday. Then in the 8th century, Pope Gregory III moved the holiday to November 1st. Well, why did he do this? It seems that in a characteristically syncretistic practice, Pope Gregory and the church made this move in order to co-opt the traditional Celtic festival of Samhain, or Samhain. Samhain, which is Gaelic for summer's end, was the Celtic New Year's festival as the Celts celebrated the end of their harvest season. The Celts also believed that this was the time in which the veil between the worlds of the living and the dead was thinnest, when the dead who had not yet transitioned to the afterlife were able to come back to the realm of the living. So to deceive the spirits of the dead that one may have wronged, people used the ashes from bonfires to darken their faces. Later, they began wearing masks. They began wearing masks to protect themselves from potential harm. However, they believed if the spirit of a loved one came about, they would be able to recognize them and reveal themselves while remaining safe from unwanted spirits. This is the roots of our modern costumes. Did you know your mask was to protect you from evil spirits if you were wearing a mask? Thus, the church, in practicing an established Christian paradigm of redeeming all things pagan, because that's what we need to do, or think we need to do, made the determination that co-opting their holiday was a good way to convert the Celts to Christianity. So Samhain became All Saints Day, preceded the night before by All Hallows' Eve. Originally, All Hallows' Eve was practiced as a night of prayer and fasting, in anticipation of All Saints Day. Changed quite a bit, hasn't it? Later, however, another secular practice was added to this ritual, the practice of souling. You ever heard that word before, souling? On All Hallows' Eve, poor people went door to door pleading for a soul cake, something like a shortbread biscuit. You know the song, Soul, the soul, the soul cake. Please, good Mrs. a soul cake. You know that uh, uh, wassailing song? Anyway, soul cake, a shortbread biscuit. The, the poor came asking for these. The faithful believed that in giving soul cakes, they were making a sort of exchange for time off from purgatory for themselves and for others who had gone on. See, I give you a soul cake. I earn some time off from purgatory, or I do from some beloved person who's moved on. 
And thus we have the origin of trick-or-treating, right? A soul cake. One last Halloween tradition, jack-o'-lanterns. We have a kind of a, a plasticized one here on the table, not a real one. Well, one of the favorite things that we, we did in Palo Alto every year was having a pumpkin carving dinner around this time of year and uh, bought a um, um, truckload of pumpkins and carved them up. Well, jack-o'-lanterns trace their origin to an Irish folk tale about Stingy Jack, who made a deal with the devil to save his soul from hell. But Jack was such a bad boy, such a wicked person, he wasn't allowed to enter heaven either. Ultimately, he was condemned to wander the world carrying a small, ladder, a small lantern made up of pumpkin. Is that right? Does anybody know what the original lanterns were actually made of? Huh? Who said that? Tom. Turnips. The original lanterns were made of turnips, carved out turnips with a red-hot ember from hell inside to light the way. A stingy Jack made his way through the world. Chalice tells us that as Irish Catholics continued to celebrate the holiday, they began making their own lanterns out of hollowed-out turnips with faces carved on the sides. When they went out souling, they would place lit candles inside and carry them around to protect themselves from the spirits, from spirits like Stingy Jack, as they still believed that during this time the veil between the living and the dead was thinnest. Well, there's a little history lesson on whence Halloween and some of its tradition. Maybe it will enrich your Halloween experience. I know it enhances mine a bit. I'm especially taken, though, with the emphasis on liminal or thin space. When the, what the Celts have taught about this that's come down to us is one of the great gifts of that tradition. Not only do memories and a sense of those who have passed, who've passed over, come close to us in this liminal space, in this thin season, but we are also blessed to draw closer to the holy, the hallowed on Halloween, All Hallows' Eve. Okay, a Baptist ghost story. This is from a, a former youth pastor named Brad Bull. This is his story. Can we go camping, Brad, please? During seminary in Kentucky in the early 1990s, I served as a youth minister at a small country church in the rolling pasture land 25 miles south of Louisville, Kentucky in Elk Creek. Spencer County Farms came in two sizes, really big and pack-a-lunch. My youth group consisted of four boys, a seventh grader, a freshman, a sophomore, and a senior. When I took them on a mission trip to Tennessee, it was the first time that the sophomore had been farther from home than Louisville. The boys' middle and high schools were in one building and had a combined 600 students. 
when we passed my middle school and elementary schools, separate buildings in little Jefferson City, Tennessee, the seventh grader said, you told us you were a country boy. You're a city slicker. Well, later that summer back in Kentucky, we were about to start a 6.30 p.m. Bible study, Sunday Bible study. The seventh grader, I'll uh, call him Kevin, asked if we could go camping that night. His grandparents owned a farm that literally had a back 40 where we previously had camped next to their brim-stocked pond. Remember, brim is a, a fish. I know my grandparents used to fish for brim in Louisiana next to their brim-stocked pond. The other boys joined in. Yeah, yeah, Brad, let's go camping. Let's go camping. After a dramatic search of my mind, I said, <clears throat> well, tell you what. If you guys will give me 30 good minutes of Bible study, I'll recruit another adult, and we'll go to the camping supply closet and get ready. And one voice, they all said, yes! Those boys studied scripture for the next 30 minutes with the fervor of Carthusian monks. Two hours later, we had the tents pitched with a dancing campfire illuminating our circle of faces in flickering amber. Kevin suddenly said, Brad, Brad, tell us a ghost story. I thought a few seconds and said, I don't know any ghost stories. Yes, you do. Come on, tell us a ghost story. I really don't, I insisted. Kevin begged some more, but I successfully changed the subject. Eventually, my second cup of hot chocolate made a motion for me to excuse myself uh, several yards away to a tall stand of sage grass. Once away from the chatter and laughter of the boys with their s'mores, a distant noise caught my attention. I looked toward the distinct sound of a chainsaw. About a quarter mile away on the crest of a hill at the next farm, I saw a silhouette of a man under a light mounted on a barn. He was using the cool of the night to saw logs. I had an idea. Not sure how long the man planned to work, I rushed back to our campfire ring and sat down on my log at the other end of which sat the high school senior. I started talking rapidly and a bit loudly so the boys wouldn't hear the chainsaw. I said, oh my goodness, guys, sorry to interrupt, but when I was over there watering the sage grass, I remembered a ghost story of sorts, except it's a true story. Kevin, your granddad told me this. So come to think of it, I bet, the, I bet he already told you all about the Boy Scout tragedy that happened here in Elk Creek. They all shook their heads curiously as I kept going. Oh, yeah, it was terrible. I can't believe you all haven't heard it. Years ago, I, I think it was back in the early 1950s, there was a Boy Scout troop from Louisville that came to one of the farms near her to camp. There were about ten boys and four adults. They were sitting around their fire just like we are. One of the younger boys got up to go to the latrine just like I did. And that's what reminded me. While he was off in the dark, he all of a sudden heard a chainsaw roaring. He heard screaming. After about two minutes, it got real quiet. The 
The young scout stayed hunkered down and hid all night long. The next morning he saw the carnage. Every single one of the scouts and all the chaperones were goodness. I, I can't even imagine the carnage that boy saw. Those poor boys and grown-ups were all cut to pieces. And they say, they say on a quiet night around here, if you listen real close, you can still hear that chainsaw. I stopped. Silence. Inside, I thought, come on, dude. Come on. Please still be working. Suddenly, from a quarter of a mile away, the scream of a chainsaw sliced the night sky and the protective dome of our campfire. It was that piercing screech that evokes images of Leatherface and Michael Myers, even for boys who just saw those movies' posters. Kevin's eyes bulged almost out of their sockets as his face went from antique white to milk white. After three beats of stunned, wide-eyed silence from the boys around the fire, the senior beside me rolled off the log and onto his belly, slapping the ground as he laughed and bellowed. That was awesome! But Kevin, I don't know if his eyes have ever blinked again to this day. Next morning, I was frying bacon and eggs over the fire as the boys started emerging into the chilling Kentucky dawn. Kevin sat on his log, holding his sleeping bag around himself. His eyes stared blankly into the fire with the thousand-yard stare of someone in shell shock. I blithely said, Kevin, you all right, buddy? Mechanically, he said, I didn't sleep at all. I just kept hearing that chainsaw in my head. He, 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 ha, ha. Now, the moral of this story is obvious. Make sure you hang a light on the side of your barn so you can do hot jobs in the cool of the night, right? Okay, seriously, he writes. Some might say the obvious moral to this story is the old cliche, be careful what you ask for. You might get it, right? Tell us a ghost story. However, I want to assert the opposite. Be bold in what you ask for. Like when I prayed asking God for patience. Now there is a horror story. Sometimes I stare in shock at the challenges required to improve, to make the world a better place. But it's such a better story than not pursuing the adventure and the connection around the campfire. Amen.